0: Father, if I had to live my life over again, I'd climb more mountains, swim more rivers, and watch more sunsets. But most of all, I would love your son Jesus and those around me, and I would let them know before life's evening. Father, if I had to live my life over again, I'd take more trips and burn more gasoline. I'd eat more ice cream and fewer green beans. But most of all, I would love Jesus in the least of my brothers and sisters and I would let them know before life's evening. Father, you know how I live every day, prophylactically. I never go anywhere without a credit card, a granola bar, some Tylenol, a raincoat, an umbrella, a parachute, and a raft. But if I had to live my life over again, I'd take a few more chances next time. I'd have more real problems and fewer imaginary ones. I'd go barefoot earlier in the spring and stay out later in the fall. But above all, I would love your son, Jesus, in those around me, and I would let them know that before life's evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So, today is Trinity Sunday, in which we celebrate the biblical concept of the Trinity, which teaches that God is both singular as well as communal. He is one and yet differentiated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many people understand this concept to be rather theologically dense and even remote or removed from a lot of spiritual experience. The Trinity is the stuff of bizarre triangle-shaped charts or three-leaf clover metaphors or something that's said in Latin you know, in omni Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. So it sounds fancy. It also sounds removed and limited to the conceptual. But I think that's untrue. I don't think that's actually what the concept is all about, nor what it's supposed to communicate. I think that the Trinity is not some uh, esoteric theory, but is, instead it's a word that describes the heart of love. It's a word that is trying to communicate in some human terminology the grand mystery that is pulling us, that is drawing us deeper and deeper into God and into the center and furnace of love itself. And I think the concept of the Trinity doesn't just need to live in our heads. I think that it wants to make his home in our own hearts and to shape our humanity And I believe that the concept of the Trinity and, in fact, the personhood of the Trinity can begin to have more and more of a life within us and bring cure to us, bring a great salve to our warring families, heal our broken churches and quell our violent riots on the streets. In other words, it can change us. Well, Paul concludes his second letter to the church in Corinth by linking Uh, two realities. He links the people of God with the triune God. And so I want to speak today about how the people of God can be deeply helped and shaped by the triune God. And so I'll be focusing uh, today on chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. And this is Paul's sayonara, his farewell, his swan song to the churches in Corinth. And so let me begin by talking about the people of God in this tail end of his letter. He says this in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. I want you to notice the language of relational harmony. He is encouraging this fledgling church to embrace relational harmony amongst themselves. And this is a needful message, especially uh, in the church of Corinth, because the church of Corinth is like the church in Brooklyn. It's a New York City church. It's a cosmopolitan, fancy, impressive uh, area. But the, the nature of the cosmopolitan and bohemian Uh, city has deeply affected, of course, the life of individual Christians within this given community. And so there's a lot of functional social Darwinism within the mix of this church. There's a lot of strife, a lot of competition, and a lot of anger um, that people have toward one another. And Paul is trying to quell that and to introduce to them a new way of being human. And so uh, this church is torn asunder by all sorts of little contests that they have with each other for legitimacy. There are people that want to cling to certain heroes and not other heroes, and therefore they're declaring themselves to be a more legitimate Christian because they belong to a particular fiefdom within Christianity and a particular apostle. There are people within the group that believe that they are themselves more rhetorically polished than others in the group, and so they're more legitimate. There are people who uh, believe that their spiritual gifts or what they've been given by the Holy Spirit makes them supernaturally superior to the person sitting next to them in the pew. And there are other people who are scarfing down the Lord's Supper like it's, you know, a buffet line at the Grand Corral so that nobody else gets any of the Lord's Supper. I mean, so there's a lot of uh, disaffected, hurting and Hurtful people within this congregational construct and Paul is telling them. I want you to be better at being family And so he uses familial language when he's talking about relational harmony. He uses familial language He calls them brothers. He said I want you to think of each other like you share the same DNA and blood I want you to think of each other as if you belong to the same mother and father and that you have a loyalty to one another. So he uses familial language. He also uses the language of affection greet one another with a holy kiss. That was to demonstrate a physicalized peace between people so that it wasn't just conceptual but it was acted out with tangible embraces uh, and kisses. Now we mimic this in, in our service with the passing of the, the peace. It was to show and demonstrate physically that you are not at odds with one another. He also uses geographic language when talking about relational harmony. He says, all the saints greet you. Remember, Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthian churches from Ephesus. So he's in Turkey, writing to these people in in New York City, in Brooklyn, uh, or its equivalent in Greece, and says, I want you to know that the people here whom you have never met want to extend to you the peace of God. So the people that you'll never kiss and worship are also extending to you this affection. Um, And notice the conciliatory language, and that's really the emphasis in this passage. There's more conciliatory language than any other language of relational harmony. He says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. Because they weren't good at that. He wouldn't be underscoring the point if this was a natural skill set for them. He's trying to make a point that he's trying to coach them into greater health and His point is simply this the people of God are to be Continually marked by new instincts when it comes to interpersonal dynamics There has to be a different way of dealing with conflict than the ways that are innate to us now I do a lot of premarital counseling and uh, during those meetings I talk about Uh, a, a rhinoceros and a porcupine and The reason that I do that is because those two things are for me models of how people deal with conflict in marriage So a rhinoceros how a rhinoceros deals with conflict in a relationship is they just have their ideas and their concepts and they believe they're right and they just rush in and they get their point across but they tend to do a lot of damage along the way Because a rhinoceros can be fairly dangerous and sometimes reckless. Uh, A porcupine, however, tends to shy away from conflict, hide in corners, shoot out their quills, and they say, don't get near me. Don't talk to me right now. And they tend to sulk away and avoid conflict and become prickly whenever conflict comes near them. So it's the old fight or flight dichotomy. Uh, And... It's really interesting to know how many couples have struggled very deeply about how to have healthy conflict and how to resolve it and live at peace with one another because it's either two porcupines that are married, two rhinos that are married, or a porcupine and a rhino. Uh, And that can create all sorts of stress and strain within human relationships. But what Paul is inviting us into is to move past fight or flight to evolve beyond being a hippo, or a rhinoceros, or a, not even, or a hippo, um, or, a, or a, a porcupine. Instead, to, to engage with, with conflict in such a way that your aim is forgiveness. Your aim is not just to get your point across and to win, nor is it to hide away and never deal with difficulty, but instead is to aim toward conciliatory forgiveness. That is to move from a baser, reactive impulse into a more transcendent virtue. That's the aim, right? So Paul's hope for the people of God is that we really start to grow up, that we grow up into our true humanity and that we and more than that that we grow up into the life of God and more specifically into the life that is reflected in the sacred trinity in God's triune nature now that brings me to point 2 of the sermon the triune nature of God so Paul is linking all of this conciliatory live at peace with one another language to the triune God in the very next verse Paul closes his letter by confessing the Trinity and its nature. This is verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice he doesn't just talk about God, singular. He talks about Jesus Christ, God, which is a synecdoche here for the Father, and then the Holy Spirit. But notice he associates them all together and yet differentiates them. Notice, too, the word Trinity is absent. In fact, it's not found anywhere in Scripture, as you may know. But the concept is pervasive. It runs throughout sacred Scripture, literally from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the Great Commission that Jesus offers us. We heard it in this service, that you would baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice that Paul sees these three persons, Jesus, Father, and the Spirit, as, a, as an interconnected communion of similarity and love that overflows with love toward humanity. And each offers sort of a distinctive and yet dovetailing gift to humanity. So they're all in agreement with each other, and they all have their voice. They all have their individual gifts, these persons in the one God. Notice, Paul interestingly begins with Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he begin with Jesus? Well, he begins with Jesus because Paul believes, uh, because of a revelation that was given to him, that you can't actually know God without Jesus. That Jesus, to quote St. Paul in another part of Scripture, is the image of the invisible God. So the clearest portrait you get of the eternal is that of a Jewish peasant. That's the closest vision you could ever have of God and this is why the bulk of the Creed Maybe you've noticed this the Apostles as well as the Nicene doesn't deal with God in the abstraction or, or God the Father it deals with Jesus Because it's through this Christ that we begin to understand who God is and what God gives and What does this Jesus give grace? the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what is grace grace is omniscient compassion It's compassion that sees everything and still loves what it sees and runs toward you uh, in the midst of your own reality. And then he says, the love of God, so the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. Well, that's a reference to God the Father, the great stabilizer, the one who founded creation and uh, causes you to live and move and have your being, Uh, the ancient of days, right? the one who brings um, the architecture of reality into being. Uh, and and the question, of course, that theology seeks to answer is, if there is a God, how do we know that God loves us? And lots of people give answers to that question. And Paul says here that we have the love of God. Well, how do we know that love God, uh, God loves us? Well, sometimes we cite our comforts, you know, the things that make us happy. You know, there are hot fudge some days, and sometimes children are nice, and uh, sometimes we have enough money, and uh, sometimes we get a nice promotion, and sometimes we even get a great vacation. Uh, and, uh, and you know, if if the good days outweigh the bad days, I guess that somehow means that the universe is on my side. If my marriage is going well, if my boss is kind to me, if I get an encouraging email, if I get a surprise check from a, 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 a grandmother, you know, who um, forgets that it's um, forgets that it's not Christmas yet, but still sends me $500. That's evidence of enduring love or God's love. But the new Testament doesn't do that kind of calculation when it comes to God's love. In fact, what the Bible teaches about God's love is something like this. Um, this is love, says St. John, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The evidence of God's enduring love, uh, the, 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 um, the, the concrete evidence in time and space and in shape is the crucified Jesus. That is, you know God loves you because he sent his son uh, to suffer, to take all of our negativity into himself. Uh, and that's the evidence of God's love. And then St. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with you always. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that poured himself out on the day of Pentecost, on the disciples, the energizing, life-giving uh, person of God. And, and and it says that his distinctive gift is fellowship. Now, what does that mean? Does Paul mean individually that every Christian has fellowship or some sort of uh, conjoined quality with, with the Holy Spirit? Well, that, that may be part of it, um, But it seems like he means something more communal. That is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is shared among disciples. The thing, the mortar that connects us one to another. Why do I say that? Because of the context. This passage is all about how Christians are to connect one to another. And so it wouldn't surprise me here if Paul means that the Holy Spirit is the glue that keeps all of us together, that we experience his fellowship within our midst. And so we have Jesus Christ that gives grace god that gives love and the holy spirit that binds us all together that connects us but i want you to notice something all of paul's directives regarding the people of god are directed within do this for one another it's an in-house kind of thing but the divine society the trinity all of its gifts are externally given they're externally given grace love and fellowship given to us Why is this important? Because God doesn't have any division within himself that he needs to resolve. God is in perfect harmony with God's own self. No competition, no Darwinian survival of the fittest. He doesn't need anything. And it's because he doesn't need anything that he is by nature a giver And so he is giving all of these things to the people of God so that the people of God would be reshaped and reformatted in his image and likeness, thus rescuing them from their darker elements and bringing out of them a truer Christ-oriented humanity. And that is how the triune nature of God, as it gives himself away to us, becomes a transformative element deep within and um, this is the the Christian hope that the, in Paul's vision that the Triune God would shape the people of God who bear His name. So the Trinity is not just some cerebral co- or concept divorced from reality. No, the Trinity is the ground of being. The Trinity lives in your house, or better, you live in the Trinity's house. You live within the realm of Father, Son, and Spirit, who are constantly interweaving with your life to show you. Endless, reckless amounts of grace and love and fellowship so that you will be freer and freer with your head lifted high and more dignity and wholeness in your life so that you can become uh, a, a beautiful example of love, grace and fellowship to the world around you. And so the Trinity creates a doorway instead of a dead end. If we just stick to our own impulses, we'll constantly hit at relational dead ends with other people and with God too. But with God, he always turns dead ends into doorways. There are now new possibilities because of the investment and involvement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into your life. And so I want to think about this Trinitarian love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for one another or the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father and Son love the Spirit, and the Spirit loves them. That con- concept of perfect harmony, complete equilibrium, total love, mutual support, that is so unifying that we have a unified singular God, what if that uniformity of love and compassion, support, kindness, and deference could invade your space, your apartment, your house, your dining room? Uh, what, what would happen uh, if your family was less tonally accusatory or bitter or resentful or stuck in the past with some grievance uh, or always worried about the future uh, or grudge holding? What would happen if, if the Trinity took over more and more of your space? or as you live in the Trinitarian house, how you might be shaped and freed up. Uh, Well, I think that could happen for you. I know it could. Um, Because steady love, when it invades, always changes the emotional temperature and mood of a house, and mood and temperature of a person. Uh, Heaven can shape earth. This is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. The Trinitarian God can shape the people of God. Let me give you a closing illustration about how this really happened in one, one man's life. I quoted a prayer earlier from Brennan Manning, and this is his uh, autobiography uh, in which on the final page he recounts a story of his own deeply troubled mother who grew up in an orphanage and became a very abusive woman uh, as a mother particularly toward Brennan. And Brennan eventually became a priest, though he left the priesthood for a variety of reasons, and wrote about his life and his lack of forgiveness with his mother until the end of his life when he had a visionary encounter that deeply helped him. So he encountered the triune God who helped him to be free because when he realized that he was loved and forgiven, he could extend a grand and reckless pardon to his own mom. He writes, a trusting heart is forgiven and in turn forgives. I know that's true because of an experience I had on a November day in 2003. My mother had been dead and gone for close to 10 years. As I was praying about other things, her face flashed across the window of my mind. It was not a worn face like that of an old mother or grandmother, but a child's face. I saw my mother as a little six-year-old girl kneeling on the windowsill of the orphanage in Montreal. Her nose was pressed against the glass, and she was begging God to send her a mom and a dad who would whisk her away and love her without condition. As I looked, I believe I finally saw, for the first time, my mother. And I learned that she was a ragamuffin, too, just like me. And all my resentment and anger fell away. The little girl turned and walked toward me. As she drew closer, the years flew by and she stood before me, an aged woman. And then she spoke. She said to me, you know, I messed up a lot when you were a kid, but you turned out okay. Then my mother did something she'd never done before in her life, never once. She kissed me on the lips and on both cheeks. At that moment, I knew that the hurt between my my mother and me was real, and that it did matter, but that it was okay. The trusting heart gives a second chance. It is forgiven and, in turn, forgives. I looked at my mother and said, I forgive you. She smiled and said, I guess sometimes you do get what you ask for. I hope that we can, by God's grace, over time make Paul's prayer and dream come true, and that we will say, I will aim for restoration, because I stand upon the sure foundation of a restoring triune God do we dare? (laughs) Because you do, after all, have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on your side. Then you always will. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.